Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. It's not the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coins, hell pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny Foolish that don't tolerate it, melanated, so you gotta hate it But rock up, up another conversation, Trump finna get inaugurated, damn Unify or die, nbpp.org First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment says you cannot be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Good afternoon. My name is Erwin Chemerinsky, and I have the enormous pleasure of being the Dean of Berkeley Law. 
February is Black History Month. In connection with this, the law school's staff circle on anti-racism proposed a panel issue of reparations. Delighted that we have five terrific speakers today to discuss this great topic. Um, I'm very grateful to the staff circle on anti-racism, and especially to Femi Ann Jackson for all of their work in helping to put together the panel, and to Jenny Boyden, as always, for handling all of the logistics so well. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 3121 in September of 2020, establishing a first-in-the-country task force to study and make recommendations with regard to reparations for slavery. The passing of AB 3121 has prompted new discussions in California and around the country on the issue of reparations, including their role in the ongoing struggle for racial justice, policy implications, and also methods of implementation. And it's all of that that we're going to be discussing this afternoon. As I alluded to, we have five terrific speakers. I'm very grateful to each of them for taking time from a busy schedule to be part of this conversation this afternoon. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they're going to be speaking. We'll hear from each of them in turn, and then we'll have time for whatever questions you want to send in. Apologize, I always do to the speakers. I'm going to do very short bios because I know the audience wants to spend time listening to you and not hearing me. The first speaker will be Charles Henry, who's Professor Emeritus of African American Studies here at UC Berkeley. Holds a PhD in political science. He's the author of Long Overdue, The Politics of Racial Reparations. He's a past president of the National Council for Black Studies and a former board chair of Amnesty International USA. The second speaker was Javon Scott Lewis. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at Berkeley. He's the author of Scammer's Yard, The Crime of Black Repair in Jamaica, in which he examines crime from a novel reparations framework. In his forthcoming book, Violent Utopia, he further analyzes the possibilities for repair and the geographies of freedom through a study of black life in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our third speaker will be Celia Sal Lucas. She teaches global poverty, practice minor, the interdisciplinary social science program, and also a court on art activism through the Big Ideas courses program. Her research is on the potential and pitfall of white people's involvement in racial justice and decolonization processes, and it sits very much at the intersection of critical race studies, performance studies, and education. Our fourth speaker, Michael Ralph, he teaches in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis in the School of Medicine at New York University. His research integrates political science, economics, history, and medical anthropology with an explicit focus on debt, slavery, insurance, forensics, and incarceration. His 2015 book published by the University of Chicago Press, Forensics Capital, examines how the Senegalese people determine who owns what in daily interaction in geopolitics. He's currently at work on two books that's on slavery, insurance, and incarceration. And our final speaker, my colleague, John Paul, professor at Berkeley Law. He's also the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute here at Berkeley, professor also in African American and Ethnic Studies here at UC Berkeley. 
He was previously executive director of the Kerwin Institute, who studied race and ethnicity at Ohio State University, and prior to that, the founder of the Institute of Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. Before that, he was the legal director of the National American Civil, Li Civil Liberties Union, and that's where John and I first met each other, I guess I should say over 35 years ago, but then I should say we were both in middle school then, right, John, when we met 35 years ago. Um, with that, I will turn it over to Professor Henry, and we'll hear from each of the speakers in order, and then we'll have questions and answers. Thank you. In the mid-1970s, I co-authored an article entitled Imagining a Future in America. And the theme of the article was the absence of blacks in utopian literature. Um, in short, how can we move from here to the future if we can't imagine a future of racial equality? Um, and the article was, was stimulated by a book that came out in 1975 called Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach. And Ernest Kallenbach's book, which was influential on the green movement and the countercultural movement, imagined uh, Northern California, Oregon, and Washington seceding from the United States. And it took place in the year 1999, at that point far into the future. Um, and, you know, it was a, a utopian society from the point of the environment. Uh, it was uh, led by women uh, in major positions. Uh, uh, marijuana was legal. Um, small business uh, ownership was important, sustainable. Economic development was important. Uh, it had all of those things that we think about as progressive going for it, except African Americans lived by themselves in an iso separated from this ecotopia in the East Bay, Oakland, California, I assume. There's no explanation as to why blacks withdrew from this ecotopia, but it, it prompted my co-author and I to look at utopian literature, and we went back and, and looked at things like the Blythdale Romance by Hawthorne, which talks about, it goes from the commune experience and talks about women's rights. It's written in 1852, essentially on the eve of the Civil War, and says nothing about slavery and what's happening in terms of race in the United States. We looked at Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, written in 1888, and um, it's essentially talking about a socialist utopia. It talks about labor rights. It's the third most popular book written in the 19th century. And blacks are totally absent from it. It's at the end of Reconstruction when redemption and Jim Crow are being established, and there's no discussion. So um, the fiction kind of mirrors the reality in terms of the fact that no mainstream American political leader for most of our history imagines the future of blacks and whites together in racial equality in America. That, of course, includes Lincoln, who right up through the, uh, the middle of the Civil War is hoping they might find a place in Haiti or Liberia for the slaves that would be freed. Um, one of the reasons that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is so popular on both liberal and conservative sides is because it's so rare. Talking about little black children and white children holding hands and walking forward together 
is rare in terms of uh, major uh, leadership in this country. Uh, most recently, uh, Donald Trump's, ex-Donald Trump's uh, 1776 commission applauds Martin Luther King for his vision, and then in the next paragraph, attacks affirmative action, which was one of Martin Luther King's techniques for getting to that dream. Um, so all of this, to me, brings up the, the, the question of repair or reparation. Uh, and, and let me quote James Baldwin, one of my favorite authors. Uh, it comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. Now, with that, I'll move to the first slide. I want to talk about sort of three aspects of the reparations movement. Um, and I just have time to mention a couple of things about each slide. And of course, you can come back and ask me questions in the, in, in the, in, in the question and answer session if, if we have the opportunity. Uh, and the first slide talks about reparation cycles. And I think at various points in our history when we've been willing to talk at all about reparations, uh, each, each period has some characteristics. And uh, the immediate post-Civil War uh, period, the emphasis is on land and the land base for the newly freed men and women. Um, as, as Du Bois said, uh, Russian serfs have gotten more than African-American slaves from their, from their countries. And of course, the most famous um, effort to provide some land base for ex-slaves was Sherman's uh, Field Order 15. Uh, which talked about 40 acres and a mule for a black family or 10 acres for uh, an individual. Um, and uh, uh, that very brief experiment uh, ended when uh, President Johnson, Andrew Johnson in 1868, um, uh, pardoned uh, all ex-Confederates and returned their land to them. Um, I want to point out, usually not discussed in that, that time period, but the Homestead Acts were published at the same period, 1862 is the first one, 1866, and there are subsequent ones. But in those first two Homestead Acts, uh, in, in, in the middle of the Civil War and just after, uh, 246 million acres of land are given uh, to pretty much white Americans. Uh, and today, uh, 46 million adult Americans have descendants who benefited from, from that land. Uh, it was essentially 10% of America's land base. A turn of the century, um, this focus shifted from land to pensions because we have reached the point that there are a number of elderly ex-slaves with no source of income, uh, many having lived through uh, um, the sharecropping system. And the United States government had passed uh, reparations for, for Union Army veterans of the Civil War on very generous terms. Incidentally, there was also a movement for the federal government to pay Confederate Army veterans uh, pensions. Uh, and there was a major effort, and there were a number of uh, ex-slave pension societies, the largest led by Callie House, among others, 
uh, calling for pensions for, for ex-slaves. Uh, that uh, didn't happen. Um, then we moved to uh, the mid-20th century uh, uh, and uh, the, the momentum generated by the civil rights movement and, and black power. Uh, we hear Martin Luther King uh, talking about insufficient funds and economic rights and a Marshall uh, Bill of Rights, uh, our Marshall Plan for the Negro. Um, we see uh, the black power movement in the form of uh, the Nation of Islam and the Republic of New Africa talking about a land base uh, for African Americans. We see uh, uh, a shift to private demands, demands on private entities, non-governmental entities uh, like James Foreman's Black Manifesto, which is asking uh, the black church community for, for reparations. Um, and then we have the contemporary period. Uh, and I cite that period as beginning with the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which provided reparations for Japanese Americans who had been interned by this country during World War II. All uh, that sparks um, uh, James uh, John Conyers' bill, H.R. 40, uh, which was presented to Congress, the Study Commission, in 1989, and uh, finally had hearings uh, in 2019. Uh, could I have slide two, please? Um, and slide two, and, and one of the things I didn't say just on the last slide was the beginning of a number of legal cases. Uh, but there, there are two real major strategies in terms of reparations. One's legal and one's legislative. Um, the legal strategies had a number of obstacles that can be summarized as the three S's, uh, sovereign immunity, uh, governments um, uh, tend uh, to be immune from lawsuits. You have to gain their permission to, to uh, sue them, uh, which has happened. Uh, standing, you have to be personally harmed uh, in order to bring the case to court, and statute of limitations. Uh, there are limitations on some of the crimes that are talked about, and other uh, incidents were not considered crimes at the time, i.e. slavery being legal in the United States. Uh, so a number of communities, both national, uh, state, and local, have referred to legislative uh, strategy. And... Uh, in my book, I look at two in particular, Rosewood, Florida, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, arguing that, the that there are a number of similarities in, in those cases, but there was success in Rosewood in gaining some reparations. It's not been success in Tulsa. And um, uh, I, I think the cases are similar. Uh, I mentioned the similarities in terms of uh, time, uh, the early 20s place, the, the resistance, the lost prosperity, blacks being driven out of town, uh, the role of press, the deaths, um, the erasure of these issues from uh, the historical record. Uh, but I argue that Rosewood was successful for uh, two or three things that we have to think about in terms of successful legal case or legislative cases. Uh, one was that Florida had a mechanism to handle disputes from people who had been impacted by governmental action and couldn't get around sovereign immunity. Uh, they had an ombudsperson, and, and so the Rosewood claims went into that mechanism 
uh, it was a mechanism that handled that sort of thing. Uh, secondly, uh, they had a lobby and they had a survivors group. They had a congressional black caucus in Florida and a lobbying uh, and and, and um, uh, an organized survivors group that wasn't present in in Tulsa. Um, and uh, there was more white opposition in uh, Oklahoma. And I actually considered the Oklahoma case a stronger case because of the more extensive involvement of the government in the 60 to 300 lives lost in uh, Tulsa. Uh, a mass grave was recently discovered uh, in, 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 in Tulsa. Um, let me um, go on, because I've got one or two minutes left to talk about slide three. Uh, and that's sort of some contemporary things that are happening. There's been a shift of public opinion. I think we might now be in another cycle uh, of, of reparations. Uh, I think part of that is due to the uh, overt white nationalism of the Trump administration uh, and the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, on uh, uh, the quite obvious racial injustice in the United States. So one measure of that shifting public opinion would be the presidential campaigns. In 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, Democratic candidates are running away from the reparations issue. Um, uh, you know, they're saying things like, well, it's a worthy issue. Uh, it's an important issue. Uh, we can't deal with it now. Uh, Obama puts it in the very narrow context of slavery, saying it's, it's, it's something that's not going to happen. What happens is past presidential campaign, uh, every Democratic candidate has something to say about reparations. Uh, Biden didn't have the most progressive position, but he did endorse a study commission on, on reparations. So uh, it's an issue that's uh, being talked about now. Uh, the last thing I would say is that uh, much of the discussion focuses around uh, economics and uh, 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 financial payments. There are also other kinds of reparations, and you can see in this list, for example, uh, the repatriation of art uh, stolen from Africa by the Dutch and, and, and French governments. Uh, colleges who have benefited from slavery offering scholarships to uh, and, and money for study centers uh, to descendants. The creation of museums like the National African American Culture Museum in Washington or the, the, uh, the uh, Montgomery uh, Museum Memorial uh, of Brian Stevenson or the new Mississippi or Atlanta museums. Um, so those are important forms of, of reparations that help uh, to heal and begin the discussion. Uh, and uh, as mentioned in the opening by the dean, uh, we have a new California law. Uh, a study commission will be put together. The law was pushed forward by um, Shirley Weber, uh, a professor of African-American studies at San, uh, in, in San Diego and the new secretary of state. So I'll stop with that and I'll welcome your questions in Q&A. Thanks. Hi, so Charles, thank you so much for that. Uh, you continue to be an inspiration in the work that I do around some of these questions. And in particular, uh, now that I've turned my attention towards um, Oklahoma, um, thinking back to the moment of Indian Territory. Um, but the discussion that I want to have today um, 
it takes us to Jamaica. And it's an important move, I think, because it's important to remember that, you know, transatlantic slave trade was one of our earliest instantiations of what we now would call or identify as globalization. Um, and so the claim of reparations and the, the issue of reparations need to be, needs to also be seen within this kind of global, global context and not, you know, parochialized, if, as it were, in, on the basis of the nation state. Um, so I want to start with the liberalization of uh, Jamaica's telecommunications industry. Uh, this is at the turn of the century, and it spurned, spurred the development of the country's call center industry, providing data and customer care services for mostly North American companies such as Amazon. The call centers would quickly compete with the historical tourist industry as scores of young Jamaicans vied for these white-collar jobs. But low wages and high attrition would come to characterize call center work, but within those circumstances, a new opportunity would present itself. With access to the contact details of thousands of U.S.-based customers and having learned the art of customer service, the Jamaican lottery scam, as it would come to be called, would uh, prove the industry to be profitable after all. The scam would ultimately become a radical means of accumulation as scammers targeted vulnerable white American senior citizens, promising them various awards from cash to cards. But like the young men I discussed in my book, Scammer's Yard, some scammer crews use a sophisticated form of credit relations, telling their victims that they had been overcharged through a miscalculation of the credit card's APR. So to receive the refund of that, over, of that miscalculation and the overpayment, they would have to pay a processing fee. Scammers collected these fees through money transfer service providers on the island, such as Western Union and MoneyGram. Uh, working with these crews, uh, you know, which in particular, the one that I worked with com was comprised of three young and poor men, I wanted to understand the moral framework by which they could justify and make sense of their participation in the scam. You know, I have to admit that I was surprised when, you know, in, as they were then inspired by a, a popular song, this is back in 2012, they argued that the fraud was a form of reparations. Um, the, the, the crew's reparative justification was, you know, immediately and I think quite obviously very convenient. You know, however, given that they could articulate a reparative rationale, I felt compelled to take the justification seriously. You know, for the crew, the reparations they claimed from their victims had very little to do with the normative principles on which reparations are commonly based. You know, rather than situating reparations within an argument about slavery, they viewed reparations as an explicitly contemporary concern. The contemporary poverty that they experienced was ultimately more meaningful and identifiable than the injury of slavery. In this way, the crew departed from the global question of reparations that was taking place across the formerly colonized world. And this includes the United States. The scammer claim did much disrupt the usual discursive hindrances to reparative claims, namely recognizing the deserving victims and critically identifying complicit and guilty parties. The, pardon me, I'm getting all kinds of messages here. Okay, pardon me. Uh, so, in taking this approach, scammers engage in a politics of refusal, you know, that recognizes the unattractiveness, if not expiration, of the old options of liberal progressiveness out of which predominant reparative frameworks are born. The refusal is paired with a form of self-fashioning produced by vernacular articulations that resist liberatory ethics. This move frees the scammers from being bound by liberal respective representational politics. Moreover, the scammer and his claim can expand beyond the respectability underpinning the reparative frameworks and proposals from reparations leaders and programs. Refusal makes possible a temporal shift away from the history of slavery to poverty's contemporary experience. 
The scam's reparative formulary is radical because it mobilizes a reparative logic that's capable of reformulating the sites and perpetrators of post-colonial transgression in a manner that stretches and bends the conventional history of colonial exploitation. The reformulation, as they have it, is possible explicitly because of the spatial and racial negotiations of scammer recognition. So when answering my question of how they could think that scamming North Americans could pay the reparative debts earned by centuries of British slavery, you know, and of the, the, the colonialism that would follow, one member of the crew that I worked with replied in, you know, in, 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 in response with a, a question of his own, in which he asked me, but aren't they the same white people? You know, so during the reconfiguration of time as a reparative marker, this crew member had brought up something unexpected but unmistakable. Indeed, the whites in Britain and the whites in America were the same kind of white people, especially if we overgeneralize the kind of Anglo influence in the United States and its formation, especially cultural and political formations. Still, they were different because of their colonial past. Again, it was the British who enslaved, uh, you know, black Jamaicans as we normatively understand the process. But what the crew member was doing by lumping together both the British and Americans together was a semiotic maneuvering that accounted for a long history of Jamaican experience where the British and then the Americans functioned in the same capacity. If the British once had Jamaicans work the plantations, the Americans now had them working in the hotels and call centers that trapped them uh, in the continued cycle of poverty that in many ways linked back to the plantation. This logic of white fungibility then shifted the burden of proof away from black subjects who needed to provide evidence of their injury and instead placed that burden on whites to disprove their legacy of inducing harm. Rather than black people needing to reconcile with the inheritance of injury, whites needed to reconcile their history and inheritance of, of this harm. This move opened up the scope of culpability, right? And it upended the troubling calculation in which, for example, the United States owed African-Americans and the United Kingdom owed Anglo-Caribbean, Anglophone Caribbean uh, blacks, which only serves to reinscribe a kind of colonial property logic back onto black subjects in each geographic context. But also beyond that, to the scammers, the United States held the most viable, accessible and profitable means, right, of actually quantifying and identifying what could be seen as the material aspects of repair. Again, through refusal, the crew radically redefined the normative geographic delimitations of reparative blame, and in the process uncovered or at least made more apparent the true interconnected and globally conspiratorial crime of Western development. In other words, there was not just one guilty party, it was every party that participated and then benefited from their current poverty and the system that produced it. The rationale is a demonstration of the disjuncture between the misery and hardship of Jamaicans' lives as they experienced them on the island and the imagined experience of the material well-being of America. So the scammers produce an accounting, really, that skipped across time and geography to transform Britain's transgression into the United States. Right? And it's a genealogy that can actually be traced through the post-colonial custodianship of Jamaican exploitation, which has changed hands over the decades with the reorientation of British-Jamaican trade and political relations to that of Jamaica and the United States. As a result, Scammers explore the geographic remit of injury and responsibility to offer novel and capacious terms of transgression. The mobility of transgression is made possible by the sophisticated capacity to trace colonial debt through whiteness, both across time and space. So the reparative debt, and specifically its mobility, is made apprehensible because of the debt's core racial capitalist foundation in whiteness. This whiteness, the kind that is the same between British colonials and middle class North Americans, 
the ones that scammers are targeting, serves as a mode or a function of inequality, and therefore offers a steady marker of blame across its permutations and exchanges. In other words, the debt can move. There's a mobility behind the ability of identifying guilty parties. The transferability of this debt is facilitated by whiteness's operation as an object is overrepresented. In other words, white supremacy and its ordering of the world effectively makes the blame broad. Therefore, the white Western project's geographic scale and scope right, have meant that its overrepresentation can be manipulated wherever it is most vulnerable. This is a, the sophistication of the scammer's reparative project and where it succeeds, to use a kind of generous term, uh, compared to where most conventional reparations programs fail. But for the scammer logic, which recognizes the subjective flattening that makes racialization possible, the white state is no different or less complicit than the state's white subjects. And here's where the convenience of the scammer notion of repair demonstrates its potential. So with this approach, the scam broadens the ability for claims to be made at a growing scale, charted along a kind of tangled path of relations made through globalization and the compounding of injustices carried forward by neoliberal economic policy. In other words, as we continue to encounter and to reckon with the growing scale of anti-blackness across the world, what these moments do is they add to the reparative debt. This move remedies, in many ways, the full depth of the colonial injury by recognizing, or through its recognition of, through the fungibility of whiteness. Using that fungibility then, rearticulates whiteness as a modality capable of carrying blame and holding it inside that facilitate the most accessible claim making for repair. Fungible repair reconfigures the basis for repayment on the terms most suitable for those who are making the claim. Other more conventional programs for reparation are hampered both materially, um, but more importantly, discursively by fixed ideas of blame, which are rooted in a morality that is primarily the making of the colonial powers to whom they owe their injury. But with the deficiency of blame, scammers manipulate the relocation of this charge. Their practice, therefore, assumes the need to be made right by the assertion and the acceptance of colonial wrongdoing. So to conclude, you know, admittedly set against the kind of broader movement for reparations, which many of us are going to discuss today, which has over the past couple of years seen, you know, growing political recognition, the scammer framework is one that would very unlikely qualify as legitimate. However, my point has been neither to legitimize the scammer rationale nor to endorse the criminal modality by which it is executed. The power and value of the scammer claim, however convenient, is that among the various reparations frameworks, it is a specific and personal ideal that make up the experience of living in the everyday wake of injury. Moreover, emancipated from the expectations of both respectability and collectivity, the scammer reconfigures the sense of repair as a direct and undiluted satisfaction of those who carry the reparative blame. And so through this reconfiguration, scammers upend conventional relations between North Atlantic powers by eschewing any expectation for mutuality, recognizing that the world as it is by design will really, really never function in terms of equality. And so thus, if not formally so, reparations must be taken by whatever means, as long as those means satisfy their pursuits, which unapologetically for these scammers uh, qualify as repair. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charles and Javon. I'm going to focus my remarks on why I believe it's also essential to engage in reparations processes at the local community scale and why reparations is the approach I advocate for most strongly with white people who want to contribute to racial justice work. Back in 1857, Frederick Douglass already made the succinct point that power concedes nothing without a demand. 
And this is particularly true when it comes to demands that would impact those in power in a material way. As Charles already mentioned, even those 40 acres and a mule that were promised to formerly enslaved people were never provided. Instead, the government paid many former slave owners reparations for government seizure of private property. And as Martin Luther King argued back in 1967, quote, justice so long deferred has accumulated interest and its cost for the society will be substantial in financial as well as human terms. Most of the gains of the past were obtained at bargain rates. The desegregation of public facilities cost nothing. Neither did the election and appointment of a few black public officials, end quote. Fast forward to last year, when in July, the City Council of Asheville, North Carolina, made national headlines for voting unanimously to grant reparations to black residents. But then in November, the vote on the financial aspect of the resolution needed to begin actually implementing it was pulled from the council agenda and has not yet reappeared. Considering that H.R. 40, which only seeks to study the issue of reparations, has been unsuccessfully brought before Congress every year since 1989, it's certainly a step forward that the state of California and some cities have committed to studying the issue and in some cases have even funded certain efforts. But the snail's pace of governmental action, as well as a long history of broken promises and symbolic concessions without material impact, means that if we want to see real progress on the issue, we need to start implementing it ourselves at the community level. Some argue that's letting the government and corporations off the hook, um, and there's several points I would make in response to that. First, taking whatever actions can be taken at the local level now doesn't mean giving up on also pressuring the government and corporations. Second, as Fabiana Rodriguez has pointed out, cultural change generally precedes political change. And we can see that on the topic of reparations, too. The traction it's gained in recent history has arguably been because of things like the publication of ta Coates's essay, The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic, and because of the movement for Black Lives creation of a reparations toolkit, and there and other activists and artists and writers normalizing reparations discussions, experimenting with reparations processes, and putting the topic into greater and greater circulation. And the more we continue to do this, the more we create the terrain upon which more meaningful legislative changes become possible. Third, theories of visionary organizing, as articulated by Grace Lee Boggs and pursued by many of the current prison and policing abolitionists, aim to supplant oppressive institutions and structures not only via protest, civil disobedience, and or violent overthrow, but by making them obsolete through the development of more desirable alternatives. And we can be building and proliferating these alternatives through the money and other resources that we move towards them at the community level. And finally, we simply can't afford to wait for governmental action on this issue. And when I say we here, I do mean all of us because white people's liberation is also dependent on reparations. James Baldwin poignantly laid out what's at stake when he declared that the fact that white people have not yet been able to face our history hideously menaces this country and the entire world. The word reparations itself, as well as its practice, carries powerful potential to intervene in the understanding of this history. For example, the words aid, helping, giving, welfare, charity, handouts, donations, development, philanthropy, all of these words, when used by white people and white institutions to describe their actions, silence the exploitation that enable the capacity to give 
through accumulation by dispossession, aka stealing. Worse, these words imply altruism, generosity, responsibility for one's fellow human being, and the users of these words frequently expect recognition and gratitude, adding insult to injury. And this isn't just semantics. How we think about our actions informs how we think about ourselves and our place in the world. And one of the biggest hindrances to the dismantling of white supremacy is the entitlement complexes of white people who believe that we deserve the places we inhabit, the geographical places, the economic places, and the places of status and power. Bayo Komalafe talks about how we have never left the slave ship, that in many ways our society is still built upon its logic and that we need to be careful about making demands that are focused on justice if justice is understood to be primarily about getting a fair piece of a poisonous pie, about being fully included in a fundamentally terroristic system. So when it comes to the potential of reparations to push forward a liberatory process, we have to also be clear about what we mean when we use the term. As Robin D.G. Kelly stated, quote, without at least a rudimentary critique of the capitalist culture that consumes us, even reparations can have disastrous consequences. Imagine if reparations were treated as startup capital for black entrepreneurs who merely want to mirror the dominant society. What would really change, end quote. Or in the words of the Reverend Lenise Pinkard, quote, viable reparations have to privilege systemic change and be simultaneous with helping people change ideologically. Putting restrictions on how the money can be used so that the broadest possible flourishing happens, the capacity to flourish in the largest possible sense of community. What was lost was collective. The issue isn't access to opportunity, but to relationality, life, joy, sustenance, education for liberation of body, mind, and spirit, end quote. And this, I would argue, is just as true for white people. Our very selves are dependent upon our relations with others. When these relations are defined by domination, however, we become oppressors and love becomes impossible. If this pandemic teaches us anything at all in this hyper-individualistic nation, I hope it is a more visceral understanding of how intractably interconnected we are, that our fates are tied up in one another. And thus, reparations should be experienced by white people not as punishment, and not even simply as justice, but as movement into our own liberation. I like to use the term preparations in that academic-y way we have of putting slashes in the middle of words, P slash reparations, to place the focus on dealing with the ways in which the past is impacting the present so that we might prepare for a more liberatory future. Because there is no pristine past to return to, and how could the debts of lives slaughtered, enslaved, dispossessed, raped, incarcerated, and dehumanized ever be repaid? That's impossible but we can do what is needed to attempt to heal and to ensure that the same patterns don't continue. Preparations are a set of open-ended processes which include apologies, material redress, cultural and educational redress, and policies to ensure non-recurrence of harm. And of course, seriously pursuing any of this also requires deep internal work, some might say spiritual work, at the individual, interpersonal, and community levels. As for the governmental level, we could generate the funds for the material redress component by taking money out of policing prisons and the military and instituting a wealth tax to cap the amount of wealth anyone can accumulate. In doing so, we're then also contributing to the process of transforming those structures and institutions that are recreating similar harms under different auspices. 
In the meantime, though, there is much we can also be doing at the community level, and I'm going to end by sharing just a few examples of efforts that recognize that reparations is not just about money, but must also include this component. And I've put links to where you can learn more about these examples on slides that I'll share about each of them. So the reparations procession is a project that happened in the Bay Area last year in which an anonymous group of white people walked in mourners clothing and veils every day for 40 days and raised money that was passed on to two local organizations, Black Solidarity Fund and Segorite Land Trust. Buyback Black Debt is a project created by Sonia Renee Taylor in which white people who have spiritual debts are matched up with black people who have financial debts and both forms of debt are worked on as white people pay down black people's financial debts. The Bank of Community Reparations is an initiative that was launched by Lisa Tiny Gray Garcia as a mechanism for those who have access to hoarded wealth to redistribute it. Money from the bank is used to provide housing, vehicles, diapers, food, utilities, health care, etc. to poor people. And while this initiative is not specifically focused only on black people, because of the racialized nature of the wealth divide, black people are highly represented among the recipients of these funds, and a very interesting multiracial coalition has been built in the process. And those contributing to the bank are asked to reflect on and write about how they came to have access to these resources and why they are reparating them. And then some white people, including myself, who recognizing that inherited intergenerational wealth is a cornerstone of the continuing wealth divide, have passed on any inheritance received as reparations. This kind of practice could get formalized into a more widespread campaign in which white people pledge to do this and enter into accountability relationships around following through. In general, I think the thing to always be asking ourselves is what's possible from where I'm currently located. So given that this panel is being put on the law, by the law school, I'm curious about what the law school itself can do on this front. How about providing free tuition room and board to black students? How is the law school engaged in the current struggles related to the role of the university in gentrification and the displacement of black people? Or how might the law school materially support the grassroots leaders who are doing reparations work right now? What suddenly becomes possible when this is deemed a high enough priority to put our money where our mouths are? I've quoted a lot of people in this short talk because I think it's important, especially for white people speaking on these issues, to not act like we made these insights up, but to name our teachers and influences. So deep bows of gratitude to all those who have taught me, especially my black teachers and especially those centered in disability justice which is a framework developed by disabled, mostly queer black people and people of color, which brings an intersectional lens to bear on the creation of hierarchies of human worth. And I'll end with one final slide with a link to learn more about that. And just say that my hope is that as we continue to engage with reparations processes, Possibilities will emerge that may be beyond what we can imagine right now. And it will be messy and complicated and imperfect with no guarantees of outcomes, but we owe it to ourselves and each other to keep trying. So, thank you.
I want to thank my fellow panelists, and um, it's not to, to speak on this panel alongside you, and I, and I want to build on your insights. Uh, I want to begin, though, by acknowledging the, the land of the Lenape people where I live in and teach at New York University. If anything, I think reparations sort of reveals the predicament of what it means to be stolen people on stolen land, and I want us not to lose sight of that. Um, I'm going to organize my comments toward thinking of reparations and the kind of methodological concerns, like how we might approach conceptualizing reparations as part of this effort that my panelists are helping to articulate and how we might deliver on this deserved uh, claim for reparations. And I sort of want to begin by noting that um, in doing research um, on the history of capital in relation to slavery and insurance, and in particular, I built a website, um, treasuryofwaysoul.com, which shows the range of enslaved people who were um, rented and insured and the value of policies held by insurance companies that exist even today, like New York Life Insurance, AIG, and Aetna. And the way that slavery worked in terms of insurance is that after the slave trade to the U.S. ended in 1808, after it was outlawed, but slavery was still legal in the U.S. until 1865, obviously. So people who wanted enslaved workers in large numbers could not bring them in. Um, so they had to either sort of kidnap people and sell them into slavery, um, breed them, which took attention to the lifestyle, to life uh, cycle and took a long time, or they could rent them from people who had enslaved um, people in abundance. And the market in, in insuring enslaved people and renting them became so big that ultimately uh, you could say like three different sort of distinct categories of enslaved people were rented out. And as they rented out, they were insured because their owners didn't want to lose the value of those of that property when they were in someone else's possession. So some enslaved people were usually bureaucrats, like people ran households or were drivers or clerks. They worked in very dangerous or uh, very lucrative industries like railroads, steamboats, coal mines, or they were artisans like cobblers, blacksmiths, um, things like that. So in Treasury Warrior Souls, um, there's more than 1,300 entries of enslaved people who were rented out. When they rented out, they were insured. It talks about their owners, their names, their occupations, um, where they lived and worked. And I mention this because uh, that data that I built on to build the site and to do research on slavery and insurance actually came to me as a byproduct of the reparations movement. Uh, in 2001, there was uh, insurance passed by the California State Legislature that said that financial institutions have to disclose their historic relationship to the slave trade. And this is part of the reparations movement in an effort to identify sort of the paper trail, which companies have benefited from the legacy of slavery. Um, it's worth noting that that legislation was modeled on a legislation for the Holocaust uh, insurance, uh, Holocaust era insurance project, where um, descendants of those who have been um, interred or executed during the Holocaust, um, noted that the value of life insurance policies had been taken as well. And there was a effort to identify which policies had been taken and to force insurance companies to pay the descendants of people in the Holocaust um, for the value of those policies. And even when insurance companies had paid someone else for the value of those policies stolen, they were forced to pay the descendants the value of that policy. Um, what's interesting is that with the slavery insurance um, project, there was no effort to achieve redress. It was merely understood as a kind of educational project. And I think when the question of sort of redress around slavery and reparations comes up, 
people often suggest that, well, we don't have a paper trail, we cannot identify the descendants of these enslaved people. And I think of the Treasury of Very Souls project as um, an effort to help us establish the kind of accounting we need to identify this paper trail and to figure out um, who the descendants are, but also to figure out who is liable for these injuries because establishing liability is key to achieving redress when it comes to the question of slavery and slavery reparations. So I basically want to orient my comments toward having us think to this question of liability or if my um, panelists, fellow panelists have talked about the sort of legal, historical, and practical parameters of reparations, I want to think about um, the actuarial dimension of reparations, how we might think of that. Um, I also want to note that at least one uh, woman has been able to trace her ancestry to records in this archive. It so happened that some of the coal miners working in Virginia had built a church, and because they had built a church, um, they, as founders of the church, kind of were in this different archive related to the church, and some of the founders' names are also some of the same last names as enslaved people in this um, record we have of uh, enslaved people who are insured. And so it's possible to demonstrate that the descendants of the people who built this church were also some of the same people who were, the enslaved people who were insured um, are still alive today and could potentially sue to recover the value of the policies um, in which their ancestors were trafficked. And so I think I want to encourage you to kind of think about, you know, uh, creative ways to use accounting to establish this paper trail that many people think does not exist. Um, it's very common by now for, for people of African descent to use sites like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, to understand more about their lineage and ancestry, to figure out their relationship to the transatlantic slave trade. If that's possible, I sometimes wonder to myself if it's possible for us to um, input the tax records over time of people whose families held enslaved people or insured or bought and sold enslaved people if there was a kind of financial version of 23andMe would it then be possible to kind of trace out this paper trail and sort of, in concrete terms, use forensic accounting to see who has benefited from the legacy of slavery and thus who might be implicated in this question of reparations. So what I want to suggest is that the key to understanding how we might achieve reparations is to think of it in the most practical sense as, as an incident in which there is an injury and in which we can establish who is liable and who the victim is. And so once we have the injury, we have the victim, we have who is liable, then we decide how much is owed and who owes what to whom. And, you know, it's often the case with something like the Transatlantic Slave Trade, which went off for hundreds of years, which has some untold victims and a scale of injury that is practically impossible to quantify, people will sort of wonder what it means to even attempt to put a dollar amount on it. But I think that, you know, you could say that about any moment in which we assess monetary value to human life. Um, you know, every day, the event as simple as a car accident, when there's an injury or loss of life, we calculate, you know, the amount of time the person will be injured, what missed wages might be from work or missed salary from work. If, uh, God forbid there's a loss of life. Um, we use sort of family medical history and risk factors, projected future wages to decide how to quantify that loss of life and that amount is delivered to the family. And what I think is important about just how commonplace this activity is of assessing the value of life and, and securing redress is that it does not rely on people to believe in this, to execute this, right? Like, you may not believe that 
it's possible to put a dollar value on a family member's life, and yet if that person were to pass away and you're the next of kin, you will receive a check once that injury is adjudicated. So I think it's worth considering what it means to think of it just as a structural feature of governance and not merely rely on whether or not people think other people are deserving of, of redress. Um, so we think of this as a simple accident or as a war crime or other kind of event, um, it becomes much easier, I think, to think about the practical implications of it. Of course, there's the simple question of like, who are the victims? And as I open with an acknowledgement, clearly we are dealing with sort of several demographics who've been injured um, through the transatlantic slave trade, right? There's people whose lands were taken. There's multiple ways of immigration. There's multiple ways of people brought, you know, to the U.S. in chains. Um, how do we quantify this? There are various people who've thought about, okay, someone who's descendant uh, in the U.S. specifically, for instance, uh, someone who's identified as black for a certain amount of time. And I think all these are worth um, contemplating these criteria. I also think that it's possible to have multiple criteria in operation such that we can imagine certain groups are deserving of a certain kind of redress um, given this kind of experience and other groups are deserving of other kinds of redress given this other kind of experience. It's not as if these forms of redress are mutually exclusive. It could be that we have a kind of um, formula for who is deserving of what kind of reparations. And along those lines, I sort of want to close with an example that might encourage us to think about just how we can think of different kinds of injury as being connected to other kinds, and even how this question of reparations is not merely for people of African descent, descendants of enslavement, but also for other kinds of injury um, for which the U.S. government is arguably liable. So I guess the last example I'll give is um, to return us to the 2008 financial crisis. And, um, you know, my thinking on this has been influenced by Bob Meister, the political theorist. But in conversation, we've talked about the fact that at the dawn of the um, the emergency, um, the Economic Emergency Stabilization Act of 2008, or was called the bailout, um, popular opinion was against the bailout. So most Americans did not agree with the bailout. And so from that perspective, you could argue that the bailout was coercive or even unlawful in the sense that um, an amount of money was taken from taxpayers and used to bail out corporations against their will. Now, if we were to believe that that was unlawful um, and if we people were to seek redress for the bailout, the question would be, well, how do you establish who's in the class that's affected, right? Like, if this is a class action lawsuit of some kind, it has to be an injured class. So we could contemplate that the injured class would be all the taxpayers from that year, 2008, and it could be that the value of the bailout is essentially the U.S. GDP because that's the collateral for the amount of money given to Wall Street. And the GDP for that year, by one calculation, is as much as 14 trillion dollars. And there are 885 million taxpayers in 2008. So if you divide 14.7 trillion by 185 million, you come up with a figure that's close to $80,000. So that would be something like each taxpayer is owed $80,000 if in fact we think of the bailout as um, unlawful. And that $80,000 check to each taxpayer would be essentially like stimulus, which many people were calling for anyway, instead of bailing out Wall Street. So even alongside this question of reparations for descendants of slavery, we could think of reparations for victims of the 2008 bailout, reparations for various kinds of um, injustice. And what it might mean is not merely that people are cut a check or get, given a certain amount of money. It could be that 
people are given an account and they can draw down on that account for health care, college tuition, um, other kinds of benefits. And that essentially what it means is the government is beholden to people through this redress for support for social services or various kinds of access to crucial social institutions. Whatever the case, I just want to note that this idea of reparations is of crucial significance to the extent that we can all agree that the transatlantic slave trade and various other events constitute a kind of atrocity and a kind of injury. We should also be able to agree that the victims of those injuries are deserving of redress and the rest, the, the specific protocol for establishing redress is actually rather commonplace and something we do all the time. Uh, thank you for your time. I believe I'm up next. Um, so I want to thank all the panelists. Um, also, I'm aware that we have very little time left, especially when we have questions. Um, unfortunately, I have to teach also shortly in, in a little bit. John, please feel free to take the 12 minutes. So to go to 2 o'clock if you can. Okay. Um, also, I'll, I'll uh, apologize beforehand, although it may not be necessary, but I, I said early on, I just got my second uh, Pfizer shot, and I'm having slight reactions, but they're not significant, but if they change, I'll let you know. Um, so first of all, I think, I think this is a really important question. I also think it's a really complicated question and a simple question all at the same time. Um, the the um, A number of panelists have said reparations might mean money, it might not mean money. Uh, I think it's hard to actually ground this question until we actually have a sense of what it is we're trying to achieve, what's the goal and purpose of reparation, and what are we trying to see, and who uh, would be the recipients, uh, and then the what and how. And that's something I can't really do in 12 minutes, and I think a number of panelists have spoken to it. Um, but I'll at least sort of try to raise some questions that I think we have to answer. And I'll use as a foil my friend Sandy Derry, who's written a lot on reparation. Uh, he has what I would call a narrow perspective of reparation. He's aware of that. He's saying uh, reparation should be cash payments uh, uh, and it's for the injury of slavery, of enslaving uh, people of African descent. And the who is who should get it is at least one parent was a former or grand, uh, ancestor was a former slave. And the what and how should be a cash payment. Um, he acknowledges that that's a limited approach. He acknowledges that, that, that the other approach. He also acknowledged, like Michael and others, that there are other groups who might have legitimate claims, uh, depending on how we talk about legitimate. Certainly there have been injuries to other groups, Native Americans, uh, Chinese Americans. There's already been a, a modest payment to Japanese Americans. Um, but whether or not we want to sort of follow the same template is questionable. Um, so what is, that we, what is the goal of reparation? So one would be, in a sense, backwards looking. Uh, there's an injury, a set of injuries that happened, and they didn't happen a long time ago, like a lot of people think. I'm um, thinking of uh, a Blackman's uh, book, Slavery by Another Name, that suggests that slavery in some form was actually operating in the United States until the 1940s. Um, and then you look at people like Michelle Alexander who say that, okay, we shifted from some formalized slavery to a different kind of slavery uh, or um, a caste. So that the, the, in a sense, the underlying performance of um, hyper-exploitation of a people in part based on race continues. And I think that's part of what 
uh, Javel was speaking to us, not just what happened a long time ago, but then Javel complicated the issue some. He's saying it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. So then do we have a global response, which actually complicates it uh, um, substantially, especially if we think in terms of the United States, although one could argue that the United States is not just a nation state, it's actually um, global and pluralist, and this economy reflects that. But that just sort of speaks to some of the complexity that some of the practices are still going on. So why would we, so clearly there's been a set, a set of injuries. Uh, it's not as clear who are the perpetrators of those injuries, uh, who uh, benefited from those injuries, and maybe therefore who should pay. And I guess I would actually uh, um, at least uh, interrogate the issue of white people being the perpetrators of the injury. Uh, and I know that's sort of a, a popular stance, but let me just give you one example. Uh, if you look at the racial wealth gap, which is one of the things that uh, Darity looks at, he says that should be a target to, to eliminate the racial wealth gap. By some accounts, uh, and there's different data points on this, the racial gap, racial wealth gap between white people at 50% of the median income for whites and blacks at that same median income is about 3%. Uh, are we really saying that if we pay blacks at the lower 50%, uh, increase their wealth by 50%, we've resolved something? We've actually paid reparation? I think not. Um, but if we look at it in aggregate, instead of disaggregating, we see the racial wealth gap is huge, 10 to 1. But it's not whites in the lower 50%, and not even whites in the lower 70%. It's the elites. Well, now we're talking about something else. We're not talking about white people writ large. We're talking about something else. Wealth is just one indicator. People might say, well, there are other indicators, like how you're treated by the police, where you go to school. I think that's all uh, reasonable to sort of factor in. But it sort of shows in terms of uh, the way we talk about it sometimes, I think, creates a binary that's, that's not always helpful. Um, and if we could tr close the racial wealth gap, let's say between the bottom 50% percentile, Blacks would not be that much better off, nor would whites. And so I want to posit that we actually want something else. We don't just want to close the racial wealth gap. And the racial wealth gap is not simply the, the uh, enslavement of black people instead of land is actually doing something more than creating a racial wealth gap. Um, Michael Olney and Howard Winnett in Racial Formation called racism and uh, racialization the master category. And what do they mean by the master category? What they really mean by that, I think, is that that category of race and racism is used to structure every aspect of society. It's, it helps us understand our relationship with religious minorities, with gays, with people with disabilities. If that's true, if that's accurate, then should those groups have a claim through that category? Or should the category be exclusive to uh, people who are um, direct descendants of slaves? Um, Again, Darity doesn't reject that. In fact, he acknowledges that. But he says each group should actually make its own claim. I think that that's politically fraught. Um, I think that if, if, if those claims are legitimate, if we acknowledge them as potentially legitimate, but then say we're going to defer their claim until some other time, we're essentially creating what we call breaking. We're creating division between groups. We're creating, uh, and, and we're missing, in a sense, the kind of power dynamics that would be necessary to make this real. Um, but let me give you what I think of as, as another problem. And I don't want to make it 
too heavy of a problem because, as a number of speakers have said, we've already paid reparations. I mean, if you think about it, the first uh, successful slave revolt, you could say, in the New World was Haiti, uh, when Haiti revolted against France and eventually won. But part of the peace treaty with France required them to pay reparations to France until the 1950s. So clearly, the world didn't have trouble paying reparations, in a sense, to either the enslaving state or the slave, uh, the slave holders. Um, and the, the irony and craziness of that, it's just hard to wrap your minds around, that people fight for their freedom and then have to pay because you enslave them. I mean, anyway, that's, uh, and that's the 1950s, so we're not talking about a long time ago. So we have a number of examples of uh, paying reparations to the elites. Uh, so I don't want to make it too complicated. People didn't have to go through all these machinations to say, well, well how would you do that? They did it, right? Uh, but having said that, I do want to suggest um, that what we're trying to achieve through reparations is not just a cash payment, which people have said. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So if we think of enslavement as actually creating a system, not just wealth, but a system that actually creates inequality, denigrates the lives of people, uh, and so on, that system is in place. And I worry that if we pay people a cash allotment and didn't change the system, the system would reproduce itself within one generation. Uh, and we have examples of that from South Africa, from Russia, and from other places where people got chunks of money, but the system didn't change. And within less than a generation, sometimes in a few years, all the money's gone and the populations that's targeted for reparations in those societies are not better off. And so, uh, so I'm concerned that unless we actually figure out a way to actually make the structure of America function very differently, just giving people money, even if it's $14 trillion, as Michael suggested, uh, some, that might change some things, but I don't think we'll change everything. So I think we have to look at the structures and look at what we're really trying to achieve uh, through reparation. And I'll end by just saying, I think part of that is we're trying to achieve, I think, some acknowledgement of the past. I don't want to just skip over that, but also a different kind of future. And what we oftentimes advocate is something called targeted universalism. That is, we're trying to get every group to a certain universal space or goal and we use targeted strategies to do that. And, but the, the targeted universalism is actually something that actually reflects intervention for all groups, but recognizing groups are unevenly situated. So it doesn't say treat everybody the same. It says treat everybody how they're situated within society and structure. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that the, the ultimate thing is that the people who are being affected not only get to decide about reparation, but get to decide about the entire country. That's the radical element of a democracy, is that we get to decide. It really is we, the people, and we decide. And we don't just decide. It doesn't mean black people decide for black people. It means black people decide for white people. It means white people decide for black people. It means we decide together. It means we co-create, which is what, quote-unquote, the founders did when they created a society. So I know I'm out of time, so I'll stop. Thank you. My enormous thanks to all five of the speakers for their terrific presentations. We do have some questions, but I apologize. We're out of time. Um, this is a conversation that obviously is going to go on, and it's going to go on in connection with the bill that Governor Newsom signed. It's going to go on society. Once more, my thanks to 
the Sastra Code Anti-Racism, Dundee Ann Jackson, Jenny Boyd, and to all of you for coming. We had a very large live stream audience, as well as those on the Zoom, and I really appreciate everyone being part of it. Thank you. Take care, everyone. So welcome to the October 6th Reparations Committee meeting. Uh, we are excited to be hybrid now. So if you could please spread the word and let everyone know that you can participate virtually or in person, um, you can sign up online at cityofevanston.org and, and, and learn all about that. We also have our community stakeholder leaders like Indana that generally streams it and posts updates and so on. I don't know if she'll continue doing that now that it's hybrid, but no, okay, perfect. So, you, uh, so thank you for bringing it to the community until this point that we were hybrid. Appreciate you. Uh, before we get into the meeting agenda, we have a new committee member. And we want to say congratulations to our new Second Ward Councilwoman, Chrissy. If you could just introduce yourself. Good morning. My name is Chrissy Harris. I'm a resident of Evanston, born and raised. And so I went to college. Um, second ward, I work at Oakton Community College, and I'm excited to serve the community in which I live, and I'm excited to be on this committee. So thank you so much. Thank you, Christy, for bringing your talent to the Evanston City Council, to the Reparations Committee. Um, we know that you've been paying close attention to the reparations work um, for the last few years, and so um, you can jump right in. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Hello, Mr. Sutton. Good morning. I'm so, we are so glad you're here because... Good morning, men. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome already. Hey, brother. <laughs> All right. Love that sweater. Thank you. Perfect. So if you remember, um, we passed a ancestral acknowledgement that we are going to open up our meetings with so we um, are clear on uh, why we're here and what our goals are and that we are acknowledging those that came before us fighting for our uh, repair and empowerment and also those that were harmed um, and not able to experience this season of repair for us. So Mr. Sutton is going to start us off with um, our first reading. From meeting to meeting, we will rotate the reading, starting with Mr. Sutton because he is our elder and we will always give honor um, to our elders. And so Mr. Sutton will read in the next meeting. It will be Councilwoman Chrissy and so on and so forth. Okay, good morning. With great humility and deep gratitude, we honor the strength, endurance, and sacrifice of our black ancestors. We honor these enslaved African people whose forced labor was exploited for generations to help establish the economy of our region and the United States. We honor those black ancestors who persevered despite discriminatory laws and practices that created a racial caste system, legitimized anti-black racism, and continue to plague our community today. It is only by recognition and understanding of these errors begun during our nation's origins and continue today that we can hope to correct our past. We acknowledge this exploitation of not only minds and labor, but of our humanity. We grieve for those black ancestors who, despite their contributions to the city's wealth and freedom, were never recognized, fairly compensated, nor allowed to fully realize their own sovereignty. Because of their work, we are here and will invest in the descendants of that legacy 
Now through this process, we were working to repair some of the harms caused by the city of Evanston. We also hope and focus attempts at reparations will serve as an example to the entire United States of America's government and prompt all other institutional accomplices to begin the process of repair. Thank you, Mr. Sutton. Um, moving on to item 2A, um, may we have a motion to approve the September 1st Reparation Committee meeting minutes? So moved. Second. The item has been properly moved and seconded. Is there any discussion? Seeing no discussion, may, um, what am I doing next? Uh, all in favor? Aye. <laughs> any opposed? Perfect. Thank you. That motion passes. Now we're going to get into some really important discussion. Uh, as we know, there is, excuse me, I have a question. Councilmember Reed is in route. Um, as you know, we have uh, so much work to do. And even with the $10 million commitment, we have so much work to do. Um, we also have um, lower revenues than projected based on conditions outside of our control, delayed uh, cannabis licenses. Um, we have only still the one dispensary here in town. And so we're looking for new funding scenarios. Uh, so the first, we're going to start with a discussion um, and, and we'll wait on Council Member Reed because this is one that, that he has been most interested in. Let's move on to A2, which is restricting the graduated real estate transfer tax and designating uh, a portion of it or it for a reparations fund in perpetuity. And I'll open that discussion up because it was actually my original thinking uh, for a first funding stream for reparations. Um, one is there is a direct correlation between um, real estate and property and the harm that we have identified here in Evanston, and it seemed appropriate. Two, we had only just passed this uh, graduated real estate transfer tax maybe the year prior to us passing reparations. So at that point, it had not been really identified into our budget, specifically earmarked. Um, and so we need more revenue streams. And so we did have a favorable memo from our Corporation Council, Nick Cummings, in support of uh, this being a, an appropriate reparation um, funding opportunity. I wanted to open that up for discussion and then make sure that Corporation Council, Nick Cummings, added anything to the discussion that we need to know and also he's available for questions as well. So I'm in full support of it. We just have to dis discuss if we are in support and then decide uh, from there percentages, dollar amounts, and so on. Do you want to kind of yeah. set us up? Yeah. 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 And he's done this before, so that so, but we're going to ask him to do it again. Thank you. Good morning, members uh, of the Reparations Committee. Nicholas Cummings, Corporation Council, City of Evanston. Um, essentially, uh, what was asked to me back in June was to identify various funding sources that we could to supplement the reparations fund. Uh, the memo that I prepared back in June talked about any taxes that the city of Evanston can rule as a home rule municipality. The graduated real estate transfer tax is one of those taxes. Uh, it is believed that now we're in budget season for those, uh, those of you who are council members. 
can certainly identify and reallocate where those funds go, like now is the time. Uh, if that fund is being directed to the general fund, the council can say, well, we, we want to redirect that to a different fund. And that is what I believe the discussion today is about. Um, and, and procedurally, it would take a vote of the committee to send that recommendation to the city council say we recommend using the graduated real estate transfer tax uh, to fund reparations instead of funding operations. Um, and that is true for a litany of other municipal home rule taxes that I can't think of off the top of my head right now. Um, one of those that I identified in June was the medical marijuana tax. The city levies taxes on medical cannabis. That revenue does not go into the reparations fund. Only the adult use cannabis tax that is given to us by the state goes into the reparations fund currently. Um, you know, if it's advised, but you don't have to because it's a home rule tax, but it's advised if you wanted to keep a close relationship to the harms that have been caused, such as uh, Chair Simmons talked about the real estate transfer tax, and we know from evidence that uh, there were policies that negatively impacted black Evansonians with respect to real estate, that makes sense. But you don't necessarily have to have that one-to-one -one correlation. Uh, it is a political decision, as Judge Jean-Baptiste educated me on early on, for the city council to decide how to spend money um, on a home rule tax. So if the city council says, we want to use this revenue for this purpose, perfectly fine. Yeah. Questions? So first, thank you. Secondly, we have a choice of perpetuity for percentages or a set amount. Do you have any idea how much this account brings in annually for the city? I, I do not. That is a, a, I can always try and look at um, our, our current, what was budgeted in 2022, expected to bring in terms of revenue from that. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have that answer. Our CFO would have to answer that question. And Mr. Sutton, I had the same exact question, obviously. Like, what are we even talking about here? You know, $100, a million dollars. And so we did ask, and I think we had kind of a broad response um, to Sheik. Did we get a detailed answer yet from um, Hatesh? No, Hatesh was out of the office this week, so um, we can get to the next meeting. Okay. Because we're here for Okay. Or I'm just saying back to you all. Yes. Yeah. So if we, if we had a more general vote about the use and then tabled the discussion about the particulars to the next meeting. How does that interplay with the, the you know the budgeting process and how things are sure. allocated? If we wait until November, are we going to miss this opportunity or have to backpedal? Is there a way to put a placeholder in until we can go through the particulars? It's not, you won't necessarily miss the window of opportunity. Um, my understanding is that the budget will be the draft, the first draft of the proposed budget we presented to the City Council on the 17th of October. So I don't expect that to be, I definitely don't expect the City Council to say, this is a perfect budget. We're going to pass it right now. Mm -hmm. So I expect that there will be more work to be done beyond the 17th of October. So if you did want to take that, um, you wanted to vote on, on that now, but then wait and see what those numbers actually are to make a, a further recommendation later, you can. Um, but I, the city council, how they work with the budget and... There's opportunity for yeah. the budget. Okay. Um, I mean, it, could, it may, wait, may not get passed until December. We don't know. Kashyyyk, and then I'll respond to that. Okay. 
So I'm looking at the budget calendar, and the earliest possible uh, adoption date is uh, November 22nd. So what I would suggest we do is um, have any further discussion on our support of moving in this direction, um, wait to get the numbers from Hatesh, and then if necessary, schedule a special meeting if we need to get ahead of the council calendar mm -hmm. uh, so that we can send a recommendation that's detailed and specific. Um, but any further discussion on this as a funding stream generally? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. So just point of information, I want to understand what funding stream? So we, we waited on one so that you could be here. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're on two right now, which okay. is the graduated real estate transfer tax. And so where we're at is some, we're leaning towards the general support of that. We have um, Corporation Council in, in support of that as a revenue source, and we're talking about as much detail as we can, not having um, <coughs> revenue information, historical revenue information. Mm -hmm. My yes. question is, you know, has there been any precedent for this? I mean, has this tax been used elsewhere in the past? Yes, so, so of course, because it passed, uh, I believe that was 2018, if I'm not mistaken, but um, do you want to respond in detail on what line item it is in the budget? That, unfortunately, that information I don't know in terms of how it's like general fund. General fund. All of it goes to the general fund right now. Yeah, I know, but that my question was to use it in a separate way. Like, we are asking to have it be used for reparations. It's currently used in a general fund. So it has not been used in another way ever before. Just a general fund. Which supports the multitude of departments. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, Councilman Marie, did you have anything before we... Yeah. Um, I, I think... So if, if we're still talking about two, I support uh, generally using the real estate the real estate transfer tax for reparations, I, I do think it might be, uh, you know, these funds in particular might be <clears throat> good for uh, affordable housing generally. Um, but I, I, I do think uh, looking at um, number one, which is... Can we wait to get oh, there? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Anything else on no, I, I think, uh, and we don't have an estimate uh, of, of the annual revenue. That's I know it's a, it's, right. I know that increment, the new increment, is about 1.2 uh, to 3, maybe even all the way up to $1.5 million. So um, is, are we just talking about the new increment, the graduated portion, or are we talking about the full tax? We're talking about the uh, graduated tax. That so, so just the increment. We're talking about the, the graduated portion of the tax? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that'll be about, uh, you know, roughly 1.5 max uh, annually. So we just wanted to wait until we had those numbers. We, you know, we know a ballpark, and Hatesh was unavailable to get it to us. Are you able to pull it up quickly? Yeah. There, yeah. Here I can pull it up. While we're waiting for that, I'd like to say that I would be in favor and think that we, as we get more information, but that we stand behind it as a general um, movement, but then decide what that looks like. Perfect. Thank you. And, and just for clarity, and obviously you guys make the decision, but um, from a staff perspective, it's the assumption that the recommendation would be to supplement the current funding source Absolutely. with the graduate. Gotcha. 
Let's please make that very clear. <laughs> this is an additional funding stream. I just could say that maybe we could not work so much look at the numbers today and look at the discussion because we have the other areas to discuss and I mean there are some other things on our agenda that we might want to make sure we get to. I, I agree. It would be helpful because budget, you know, the council members are coming with their own ideas and leadership on what they think should happen with the budget. So the sooner I think we could get this in front of them to answer their questions, concerns, educate them, um, I think is better. Yes, it's very appropriate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> immediately, yeah. we're beginning budget talk. So yeah. the more information that we can share to our counterparts is yeah, Mr. yeah, my other concern is to have specific information we've also had traditionally set aside for affordable housing, and I've never known of any distribution from those funds. I had a very long talk with Ma Rainey when she was here. Mm -hmm. Collecting all this money from these buildings in lieu of, of for where, how much is in that account, and how much is available for affordable housing. And at that time, uh, she said they could only take it out from the tax, it had to be a minimum amount for distribution. So that everyone understands what Mr. Sutton is bringing up, a very good point. The inclusionary housing zone allows for planned developments to pay a fee in lieu of affordable units. And <clears throat> what I hear Mr. Sutton saying is that we should learn more about where that fund stands and consider that as a revenue stream as well. So. If I, if I may, uh, Mr. Sutton, I had this conversation recently with our interim community service, uh, community development director, Sarah Black. Um, the city's affordable housing fund doesn't have the revenue that it used to. And that is because the inclusionary housing ordinance was amended to allow, allow or at least encourage developers to include more on-site affordable units rather than paying the fee in lieu of. So more, more of our recent developments in the city of Evanston have included on-site affordable housing, um, or at least they've been developing units for affordable housing instead of paying the fee in lieu of. Uh, and so the affordable housing fund is still there, but it is usually used to subsidize or encourage development of affordable housing um, rather than to support uh, this particular fund. That doesn't mean that that couldn't change, and I could actually, you know, have our our office look into that. Um, but, but that usually is, is um, you know, money directed toward, for example, SEPA. If SEPA wants to build a development, it helps subsidize some of that financing to build affordable housing units. And usually, what the affordable housing fund does. Thank you. Do you think you're going to get to it, Council Member? Uh, yeah, I can brick drop the note in. Uh, at some point during the weekend. Yeah. Okay. So then we'll move on from that for the sake of time. <coughs> I just find the, oh. were you looking at the 2022? Yeah, I was looking at 2020, yeah. It doesn't show the graduated. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it does show that the city received three million in real estate tax as of August 2022. So really doesn't show the graduated. The reason? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, thank you. That's not the, the detail that we need to have a, um, informed discussion. So we'll move on from that and hope that Hatesh can get us back. And we will call a special meeting <coughs> if we need to. You guys can keep us clear on where the council is and if we need to call a special meeting, we'll do that. So let's move on to... Uh, yeah. Do you want to make a 
motion right now, though, that, that we get behind that? Well, the, knowing that we're going to get the... So we have um, we have consensus that we want to move forward with this as a revenue stream with okay. more information. What type of action do we take without being able to give clear direction? Oh, I mean, we. I think it's worth discussing all of the options, but I, I do think that the action or the the motion could be to, uh, you know, direct staff to look into what exactly the increment is. And then recommend that that increment be dedicated to. Uh, I move that we uh, move forward with the graduated real estate transfer tax as an additional reparations funding stream. Second. Or, sorry. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Perfect. So we'll move forward with that direction, and further action will be taken once we have information from him. <coughs> And let's go on to three, and that's setting aside uh, $3 million of ARPA funds for economic development. And, and so why it specifies economic development, um, the Corporation Council has looked into this as a funding stream and is advising that we, if we do go forward with this as a funding stream, that we look to use it for economic development purposes that is a next step of reparations that a lot of people are really depending on us to get to. Um, so that it would leave some funding opportunity available for us to get to economic development. And this would be more likely um, identified <coughs> census tracts uh, based on where we have economic development opportunities in predominantly black neighborhoods. And so um, if you want to give us any setup on this, Sure. Uh, good morning again, members of the Reparations Committee. Um, I actually brought the final rules from Treasury um, from January 2022 on this particular issue um, to try and help guide some of the discussion. But uh, in, in any event, um, essentially we can use ARPA funds in any qualified uh, area, understanding that the economic impacts tended to affect black and, and brown folk uh, generally, and the, and the Treasury even recognizes that um, in, in the final rule. Uh, but, you know, we can utilize ARPA funds to support businesses to um, subsidize jobs to employ people who are either under or unemployed due to COVID, um, even if that business itself didn't necessarily suffer economic loss. Uh, and there are guidelines in terms of which households might be eligible for something like that. But we can certainly use those dollars to be targeted in those areas that we know were um, impacted uh, as a result of COVID, which tends to proportionately lean this way. We, we don't necessarily have to specify rates. Um, federal dollars tend to not allow us to specify rates, um, but we can always use uh, a slew of different qualifications as a substitute for rates, and we know that they tend to be rates. Um, for example, that Treasury allows recipients to identify impacted disproportionately impacted beneficiaries based on their eligibility for other programs with similar income tests. So if someone receives a children's health insurance program or Medicaid or um, TANF or SNAP, all of those, and we know that those disproportionately are go to black and brown folks, um, we can utilize ARPA funds in those areas where in those folks that 
qualify for those programs to be eligible for whatever program this committee develops. Thank you. Any discussion among the committee? Uh, if we could just uh, give the definition of ARPA so those people can know that acronym, please. Yeah, it's the American Rescue Plan Act. Thank you. Any other discussions? I would love to hear from our leaders that are on the council on kind of what what do you think the appetite is, what's been the direction, what type of opportunities remain with the ARPA funds? Uh, ARPA funds are uh, starting to uh, dwindle down. Uh, I, I believe there's uh, somewhere south of uh, less than 10 million left in ARPA. I think it's roughly 9 million. Tashika, is that sounds about right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think uh, I think this council and our city has made a lot of declarations of uh, supporting uh, reparations, and so I think there should be appetite. Uh, I think, uh, again, the funds are, are, are really getting small now, but I think this is something that uh, if coming from this committee with full support, I think it's something the council could get behind. Uh, but I think it's also something we need to be pretty direct on, move quick on uh, before other proposals come in. I agree with that completely. Um, yes. Where, where did the, given that there is $9 million left, where did the $3 million ask come from? Well, it initially we have a three maybe $3.4 million gap. Maybe it's left now with the rest of, with the cannabis sales tax that's in our fund to fund it. We're trying to fund our, all of our right. answers. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that was where <coughs> that goal is coming from, that, that dollar amount. Um, although this particular funding bucket is not ideal for that purpose. Right. So we might, if considering going for we, we might just remove that dollar amount. Just or we may not. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but in the act for oh, the, the more the better, um, and if the program could fit squarely within um, the economic development, uh, I, I, my my preference would be not to limit it. Would be to be to be to to ask for as much as we could from the other fund, realizing that. You know, there will be some other requests and allocations, um, but not to limit that with the app of three million. So, I, I would suggest um, we put a dollar amount because if you let me decide, then, and not me, but a person decide, then they may tend to go lower. So, you always want to start with the highest ask, knowing that the potential to be lower is there, <coughs> even if we raised it to four, really hoping there might be an option. But we should put a dollar amount to it. No doubt that, you know, the recommendation goes with the dollar amount um, for obvious reasons. And also being mindful that, you know, the ARPA dollars are because of the crisis of the pandemic and intended to be used in areas where that were uh, affected by the, um, by the pandemic. So, there, you know, are other priorities mm -hmm. and yeah. exactly. Well, I, I want to concur though with Claire about it not being limited to just economic um, benefits. I, mean, I know that um, that is a big issue, but there are other issues too that could benefit possibly from the fund. 
Well, one thing is we have to remember our resolution 126R19 is clear on priorities, housing, economic development, and educational initiatives. And so um, we have to, for now, stay in that framework for now. And that's, that's, education was exactly what I was thinking of. Okay. And so we have to really take some time to define what, what we mean when we say educational initiatives because we have an elected school board here, and, and they have the responsibility to repair harms in education. Um, so I think that's something that we should we should take some time to define even more so. Um, but in the in the recommendation that we have from Corporation Council, economic development is certainly within our priorities, and it is an expectation from the community. I've been hearing from community. When do we get to economic development? When is there going to be Support for business development in Black communities and so on. Mr. Sutton, yeah, my concern was: is there any way we could also probably supplement the CBG funds? Um, mostly, my uh, view is it's gone into businesses, small businesses in this community, and I always felt that there should be a set aside for housing rather than for us having that responsibility as a reparation of the committee. I've looked into HUD grants and they have used community block grant funds for many of the things that we're going to use for the ancestors. Mm -hmm. So is there any way that we can get that commitment for these funds to be, um, I don't want to use the word set aside, but appropriated mm -hmm. to use for some of the things that we've already talked about, or improving your home without any cost, mm -hmm. uh, helping you out on some of the other situations uh, of repairs and things like that. That is so essential with this increase in taxes, especially to people on fixed income like me. Mm -hmm. And especially since I see two more for sale signs in my block, which means gentrification is still alive and well. Mm -hmm. So if we could get sure that we could get some of these designated, that would be a specific amount that would go to specifically the second and the fifth wards. Mm -hmm. this kind of yeah. and, no. and, and so, uh, well, remember we, uh, so let's do this. Um, I want to respond real quickly that um, that community development block grant being another federal um, stream, Corporation Council is probably going to give the same response, but I think what we should do is get a, um, a, a, a list of, a report of all of our home rule taxes. And so we're not just kind of, oh, what about this, what about that? And we can actually go through um, what you're advising or at least sharing that we consider home rule taxes. Um, and then if we could get a official response to Mr. Sutton about CDBG. So I, I was going to suggest I can talk to Sarah Black um, mm -hmm. to have that discussion because I don't know exactly what, exactly how much money we have in CDBG right now. Um, that's usually distributed annually by the federal government. And, uh, and I also don't know what programs the city per currently has in place uh, out of CDBG to support what you're talking about. Um, understanding that when the program was designed, it was always intended to be supplemented by other opportunities, right? So if there is a current program for the city to use CDBG funds, the city has, has, has historically, and I know because we have a lot of foreclosure actions, uh, as a result of it, given loans to people um, to help to do exactly that out of either NSP or CDBG programs. 
um, neighborhood stabilization program or community development block grants for those that don't know the acronym. Um, the city has historically done that, so I don't know if it's still doing that or not um, with the current CPG funding. Um, the only other thing, too, and I know I showed this to Councilmember Reed, I just wanted to put this on the community committee's radar. The city council approved an ARPA plan in March of 2022 and divided exactly how much um, money was going to go in to support certain programs. So there were two programs that would be very pertinent to this uh, group, which is negative economic impacts and services to disproportionately impacted communities. And the total promise of ARPA funds by the council at that time was $18 million. So I don't know exactly how much of that $18 million has been committed, um, but to give everyone an idea of what that was done um, back in March. Awesome. So with that, because um, we have another really big uh, discussion item, um, there is support from the committee to move forward with the ask for, for ARPA funds. Um, let's discuss the amount. Right now we have $3 million up for discussion. We understand there's around nine. Um, would love to hear from the committee on some direction that we can send forward with the recommendation to the council. I would, I would move uh, to, I mean, I don't want to sell short if folks are saying go higher, but I'd move the $3 million, uh, forward. Is that a motion? That's a motion. Second. So we're going to move forward with a recommendation to the city council that $3 million be set aside to the reparation fund specifically for economic development opportunities. Oh. Yeah, we're going to vote. Okay. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Oh, okay. I would just increase the dollar amount. I would increase it to $4 because I think we're going to get kicked back. I, I will make a friendly amendment uh, to move the dollar amount up to five million. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Is there any discussion? All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? We are making a recommendation that five million dollars be set aside from the ARPA funds to the reparations fund specifically for economic development. Great. And now we're going to move on to um, item A1. This is advancing um, $3 million from the general fund to the reparations fund, which would allow us to fully fund our ancestors. I would, I would move that. Um, if, if I can move that, then we can discuss it. Second. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think we should make sure, particularly, I've said this before, I think we're all in agreement, understanding the, uh, you know, just to qualify as an ancestor, you're in your 70s or, or older. I have folks in my ward who have reached out, uh, curious about when they might receive funds, and I don't feel happy to tell them that I don't know exactly when, uh, particularly those ancestors will receive funds. Uh, and by making this transfer, we can ensure that uh, at the beginning of 2023, in just a few months, that every single ancestor is taken care of. Um, the, the the city has a uh, you know at, at the at the moment we have a healthy reserve or healthy surplus, um, and we can. Can you give us some details? Yeah, yeah. Our surplus uh, last report was uh, uh, our, our general fund was sitting at 47 million dollars and. Um, we have a, a current requirement that we withhold 16.66% 6 
of our general fund expenditure and reserve, and so that number is 19.1 million. So we have a very healthy uh, re reserve, or we have a very healthy surplus. Um, and I think it's time for us to determine our values and with a with surplus that large, and you know, we'll dwindle down. I think uh, Tesh has estimated that at the end of the year, if, if things go accordingly, uh, the, the fund will be sitting at about uh, somewhere between 30 to 35 million, so still um, a healthy surplus there. And, and this is something that we can afford. Um, and so I think we should take care of this and make sure our seniors are, are taken care of. Committee, med committee member McFarland. So I, I, um, I wonder if um, Council Cummings can speak to, because my, my concern of, of course, I think we all, it goes without saying, share the um, priority and the sentiment that we want to get reparatory funds in people's hands as soon as possible. However, my understanding of the current law um, <coughs> gives me concern that this use this way might leave us open to some legal challenge. Um, I'm not sure if that could be, if we could circumvent that by some kind of designation as a loan to the fund. But from my understanding of the way the law stands, this would leave us open. This would really open us up in a more significant way to legal challenge. Sure. Um, so first, I, I want to say that um, the, the, what, the risk that it poses to us increases the people who could have potential standing to challenge the program. Um, right now, it's very difficult to identify someone who would have standing because of the criteria that the committee has set for eligibility for the program. Um, you actually have to basically have suffered discrimination um, uh, and, and be able to, to show it and then have applied and be, have been denied because of the basis of like your race or age or gender or something like that, um, because of our, our, our criteria spelled out, at least for the first two, that you should be a black Evanston resident or a black descendant of an Evanston resident. But the catch-all was if you can prove discrimination beyond 1969, regardless of race, you could be eligible. Um, the idea of what's called taxpayer standing, which is anyone who pays taxes, that's supposed to be for the benefit of the whole, uh, if the city takes money that was allocated for that and then redirects it into something that is not meant for the whole, it's meant very specifically for the smaller uh, beneficiary group, which is the reparations fund, um, then individuals could, not that they would or will, but they could then challenge the program without even having to have been eligible to be for the program in the first place. They can just say, you are misdirecting my tax dollars. Now I have reached out to Chapman and Cutler for uh, an uh, even more learned opinion with respect to tax policy on this. Um, I have not heard back yet, uh, but that is from the research that my staff did this summer. That is my understanding of how um, that that could play out. Uh, again, I'm not saying that, and I know the question was posed to me in June. Well, will we win? Um, a good lawyer will never give you certainty. We can tell you what's likely and what's not likely to happen. Um, so the answer to that is I don't know. 
but the idea that, that prior to even the city council considering approving the resolution creating the program, we were getting threats from conservative groups that are just waiting for an opportunity. And I feel like this taxpayer standing idea would, would give them that, that open. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I hear what you said on the taxpayer standing point, but I mean, if, if we're concerned about someone getting taxpayer standing, I think the cannabis tax opens us up to the most, only because anyone can go into a, a cannabis store and buy cannabis. They don't have to be a resident of Evanston, and uh, you know, would that grant them uh, standing as someone who paid the cannabis tax? Uh, we just voted to support uh, moving forward with the real estate transfer tax. So does this now, would that also likewise increase our liability because anyone who sells a house uh, would have standing, you know, and who buys or sells a house would have standing uh, to challenge uh, us in court because they are now a taxpayer. Um, and so I, I think there is some risk with, with all of this, but um, I think I, I, I trust Evansonians, and, I, and, and right now the real estate transfer tax is a tax that goes to the general fund. Um, you know, we can make this transfer uh, and, and, I, and I do not believe that, uh, you know, we have some great thing to worry about. I think we can make this transfer, we can do right by our ancestors, we can live up to our commitment, and we can be bold. Uh, and there are communities right now that are using $10 million in ARPA funding for reparations. You want to talk about bold? And they're not, you know, worried about, and the taxpayer standing there is, a, is, 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 you know, much greater than it is for our local use general fund uh, uh, taxes. Uh, so I, I hope that, you know, in uh, about of over-cautiousness, we sell our seniors short and we uh, don't live up to the values that we committed to uh, years and years ago when Robin first made the bold uh, uh, presentation of putting forward uh, this, this very concept. And so I think we need to continue being bold. We need to stand up to the bullies that uh, have tried to threaten us from Washington, D.C. and other places. These aren't Evanstonians that sent those letters to us. These are folks from out of town. We should be able to trust our community and live up to our values. Chair Simmons, can I just briefly? Please. Yeah. Um, on the first issue, that's, that's precisely why I reached out to Chapman and Color um, for a more learned opinion with respect to the other taxes, whether that would propose taxpayer standing. It's my understanding that as for lack of a better term, voluntary taxes, it'll responsibly no. Um, but I'm, that's why I reached out for that, that uh, piece. And as far as using ARPA funds for reparations, we have looked in, I believe it was Providence was one of the uh, communities that's doing it. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still funneling those funds to qualified uh, census tracts, uh, which is how they are able to substitute uh, rates. The one community that tried to use CARES funding, um, I believe was in Oklahoma, this is before ARPA, uh, they were immediately sued and those monies were, are still tied up uh, by an injunction because they tried to utilize money based on race. Um, if they would have gone to qualified census tracts, it might not have been a problem. But, um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm trying to, and my job is to be overly cautious and, and you guys' job is to be bold. So I'm just giving advice. Um, to try and reduce the risk profile, that's all. Mr. Sutton? Yeah, uh, two concerns. If we had not already lost 
several recipients from the ancestors, I probably would not see this as uh, something that we should address. But more important, when I looked at that lawsuit from Austin, Texas, that uh, came in here, we have to decide, we as a city have made a commitment to fund reparations for 10 years. Now, are we going to be like when Martin Luther King went on the march to Washington? We presented you a promissory note and your answer to us from Evanston that there's insufficient funds. So go back, that piece of paper that we've given you from the Constitution that you deserve these kinds of uh, commitments, that you no longer are eligible for these, that kind of callousness. I do not want to be in a city that's afraid of some racist asking about a question of how his money is being spent. When one, the city's already made a commitment to people like me, and two, that there's no way you can repay me or my family for the damage done. So anyone who has a question like that, I would love to address him personally. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons, and the, 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 the last point I forgot when I was responding originally, it's one of the reasons why I've recommended the council, or I've recommended this committee that they recommend to the council, to reallocate certain home rule taxes to supplement the fund. Um, if if the, the political decision is made on how the city is going to spend its money from the get-go, the money and it's part of the, the to the response to the uh, adult use cannabis tax, the city made before a single dollar even came into the city, the city determined that it was going to direct that money into the reparations fund. So it was never had an opportunity to get it to the general if the city council does the same thing in 2023 and says we're going to direct certain taxes into the reparations fund, there's there's no question. It's a political decision that the city council can make to do that. Um, the only risk arises when you have money that's already been set aside for use for the general welfare, and then you start to say, well, we're only going to use it for a certain few. That's the risk. But if the city council from the get-go, to your point, that we're going to fund, as we promised, starting in 2023, we're going to direct these taxes to fund this promise. I see less risk. So um, this, this, is, this is where I really feel my lawyer hat coming on. <clears throat> I, I share from the beginning, you know, I think we, again, we all share trying to get those distributions out as soon as possible. But given that we have some options for some streams that are less likely sorry, <clears throat> to invite litigation, I think we do have, um, well, I strongly, I, 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 I feel strongly that we should explore those initially. I appreciate um, that, you know, the passage of this ordinance um, really solidifies the city has made the commitment and I think that generally when I speak to people they're very supportive and really proud of this historic program but all it takes is one and the whole thing can be caught up in litigation funds can be tied up in joint those cases can go on for years and we're stuck that's where I don't want to go um, and so that's why my 
you know, I, I, I think the program is bold. I am all for coming up with, and, and it's hard, and that's why we're here, coming up with alternatives. I really love the others that Attorney Cummings is exploring um, because those seem to be safer options, and it seems to be that we do have some other options. There may come a time when we want to push the envelope and become the municipality that has made some historic legislative history as well, um, as, and judicial history in the case. We've made the legislative, judicial history in the case. But I think let that be at our planning when we are prepared and not when we're prepared for that hit that may come. I think that should be part of a plan that we are you know, that we've made provision for. At the moment, the risk of having the whole thing tied up in the junction, you know, as what's happened with what some previous states and the, the risk to the program, I feel that an, an, unless and until we explore all these other options, that's not my, that's not my preferable avenue. Councilman Yeah, I, I just want us to really, we're saying, you know, we're using this, you know, almost like boogeyman risk that's under the bed. What really is that risk? What are we, are we saying? Do we have any analysis on, you know, does this increase our risk by 5%, 5.5%? What kind of analysis has been done to really uh, determine that this truly uh, outweighs? Have we done a cost-benefit analysis? And, and, and I don't think we have. We've just stated uh, a risk without quantifying it um, and without without truly naming exactly what that risk is. If anything, I'd be more worried about someone who would have standing, right, if you're paying the real estate transfer tax, you're moving out of Evanston. Um, and that person might be the person that I'm more worried about uh, potentially suing us than, uh, you know, someone who's choosing to live in this community or who's still committed to staying in this community. So. I think, again, it's, it's $3.5 million from local general fund, uh, from our local general fund uh, that would be going to reparations. I don't know of, and Nick, please correct me if I'm wrong, of a single Evanston resident who has sent a formal letter to your office or any other uh, city office that said, hey, I'm thinking about suing uh, with this. It would be costly litigation on their end. Um, and they would become someone who probably couldn't show their faith in this community um, with the shame that would be attached to, you know, filing a suit against this program. So I, I would love us to do, if we're going to say no to those seniors and we're going to let more and more people, and, and hate to say this, but more and more people pass away before they receive a benefit that we committed to them years ago, um, then we should really have a deep understanding of what we're passing up on, what we're, what the real risk is, and not just a, you know, a, a, a an invisible boogeyman version of risk. Um, let's quantify it. I can I can happily try and get that analysis for you. Um, uh, as I mentioned previously, General Block has has uh, graciously stated that they would defend us in such litigation pro bono. Um, and so I can ask them for such analysis with respect to standing. I believe I brought it up to them a long time ago, actually, but um, I do not have that analysis, but I can certainly push forward for you. 
Mr. Sutton? Yeah, I, I want to address everyone's concerns. Let's get one thing clear. The city of Evanston Black uh, residents, as far as I'm concerned, should have had a class action suit against the city of Evanston and realtors for the redlining and the denial of generational wealth that has affected us in this community. I don't know how many of you sitting around this table, your grandfather's house was moved from the seventh floor with compliance with the city and realtors in this city. That's right. No money was given to him. Destroyed the man's reputation in this community and had at harm that has taken me almost two generations to return to the place where we had some kind of family stability. And I'm not going to sit here worrying about what someone's going to say. My concern to them is then we'll come up with our lawsuit too. You want to sue us about this, then we can come back and sue you for the damages that you've done us in the past. Now, we want to start talking about lawsuits. I don't want to use that as, as a concern or weapon. But uh, at this time, in this political climate in America, I favor boldness rather than uh, uh, the kinds of things that we should withdraw going forward because of worrying about kickback or reaction. Great. And so obviously I favor boldness too. That's why we're all here today. Um, but sometimes the federal law and morality and our values don't always like completely align. And so with that, we do have to have a vote on this because it keeps coming up for discussion. And um, I personally feel there's a lot more discussion to be had. So much has not been said. Um, we don't have the information that um, Councilmember Reed is requesting in terms of, you know, what is the harm or the possibility, um, the threat, how do we quantify it, and so on. Um, so are we okay with having more discussion when we get the information that you're requesting from Council Cummings? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think this is important. I think this is something we should get done before the end of the year and it should be included in the budget. Um, so if, if Council Cummings, Cummings thinks that he can get that analysis from General Block or whoever uh, in the next you know, month or so. Uh, I, I agree with you on that. Certainly, um, sorry, as, I, as you were speaking, I had a brainstorm, and I can certainly look into some research on this, but um, would you consider at the end of the year, uh, you know, that the council has to do um, um, sort of a budget, budget reconciliation, and if there are certain funds that are underfunded, we have to shift that money around. Would you consider that transfer happening um, during that process? Because I wonder then if it would be an issue because of, right and so for example this past spring for, for those of you that may not have been here there's about 11 million dollars sort of underfunded from several different funds within the general fund so the city council has passed an ordinance to basically amend the budget in order to fund those funds based upon what was considered I hate using this word but a surplus in the general fund um, with that same guide, would you be open to considering it during that reconciliation process uh, to make that transfer then as opposed to now? I'm going to jump in and say I would like to make a, a committee decision 
not based on the remnants and what's left over. And a commitment from the city is going to be a commitment um, before we know what is left over, what isn't, what isn't wanted. So I would like to see um, a report that has been requested from Councilmember Reed so we can understand um, what kind of risk. And then what does that risk mean? So say, for example, we do get the lawsuit and I'm hearing Councilmember um, McFarland talk about injunctions and all. Does this mean it would stop the flow of our um, disbursement here, like generally, or just that particular funding stream? Um, disbursement would stop. But Even revenues, and revenues would continue, right. but we could not pay recipients. So, so that we're clear, that's from the cannabis, that's from the real estate transfer tax, that's from the health. Okay. Oh, that's not a guarantee.